Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Christ Fellowship. I'm excited for today's message. That was a great worship service, wasn't it? That was beautiful. What a way to start the year. Last week, Pastor Carlos revealed the word of the year. Does anyone remember the word of the year? The way, the way. And the word is the way. Before they were called the church, the early Christians were called, you know, uh, followers of the way. And the reason they were called that is because they were identified by the way they lived their lives, right? by these characteristics of how they were living their lives. And Pastor Carlos mentioned some of uh, these um, like markers. They were greatly devoted to God's word. So great devotion, commitment to God's word, sacrificial love, right? Willingness to die for the faith, desire to do God's will more than anything else. Imagine the church today were identified by those same uh, characteristics, right? Imagine People outside of the church could look at the church and even though they might disagree with other things, they couldn't disagree or deny that we were living the way Jesus lived. That would be something really special if that were uh, the way they saw us today, by the way that we loved and our commitment to follow Christ. Uh, Something else Pastor Carlos mentioned was he explained throughout this year that our teachings will include three major actions and you should see these behind me. One Devotion to God's word, which is learning what God says in the scriptures, right? Understanding God's word. Secondly, application of God's word, which is applying what we learn into our lives. So not just understanding the word, but now applying it. And then thirdly, heart transformation, which is surrendering to God so that he can transform our hearts. You can't force that part, but what we do on our part is surrender to God and God does that work of transforming our hearts. So as we dive into today's message, I pray that we have this in our minds, right? We're, de- we're committed to like de- devoting ourselves to God's truth. We're committed to applying this truth into our lives. And we trust in God to mold our hearts in that process because it is a process. So we're starting this year with a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a famous sermon said by Jesus, a very famous sermon said by Jesus. He starts it off with a list of characteristics, that are called Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes, these characteristics describe what a disciple should look like. Now, the word Beatitude just means blessedness. It means blessedness. So this is a list of blessings that Jesus is sharing with his disciples and the crowd that's around them as well. Today, we're going to talk about the first Beatitude. And we're going to, it's going to be from Matthew of verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we jump into this verse, I have to preface this with a really transparent uh, admission. I'm going to share this message with a whole lot of fear and trembling. Because as I was preparing for this message and reading and studying and praying and learning, something like made me realize There's so much growth that I still need within me. When I read God's word here, when I read Jesus's words and what he's saying in this beatitude, it makes me realize there's so much more work that I need God to still do within me. So I say there's a whole lot of fear and trembling. When we think about Jesus's timing, the setting he chose when he was saying this and his words, it should leave us with a whole lot to think about and it should lead us to reflect on where we are in relation to him and in what he's saying for us to do, for the way that we should live. So before we get into his words, let's look at the timing and the setting. So the timing is this. When Jesus was first starting his ministry, he would go into the synagogues and he would actually read and teach, right? So they would actually accept them in the synagogues. That's where they would, the religious people would get together and you know, worship God and, and learn from his word. And they would actually invite him to teach in these synagogues during that time until he read from the book of Isaiah. 
There was one day where he read from the book of Isaiah, and that was the last invitation he got. He never got any other invitations after that. Everyone else got an invitation. He would get skipped because this day he really set himself apart. And this is what happened. Jesus had just finished being tempted in, uh, in the desert by Satan, and he started his ministry, right? He left the desert and began to travel to different towns, healing people and teaching people. Uh, everything that God was obviously uh, bringing to the people. That's, that's what he started, his ministry. Eventually, he returned to his hometown in Nazareth. And when he gets to Nazareth, one Sabbath day, he goes in, again, he was invited, and he reads from the book of Isaiah. And in this reading, what he was doing was actually claiming to be the prophet that the scripture was talking about. So I want to read what it says here. And you'll hear what the prophecy actually says. It's, it's basically about his ministry, about his healing people and giving hope to the poor. So let's read from Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. And it says, this is what he was reading. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And this is the crazy part. When he sat down, look at what it says. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So he finished reading. He sat down and everyone was staring at him. Everyone just kept their eyes on him because they knew something was happening there. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled by in your hearing. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And basically, Jesus said, I'm fulfilling this prophecy. I'm fulfilling it. In other words, Jesus said, I'm him. Like, that's what he was saying right there. I'm him. And after hearing this, there was a little bit of a back and forth. But eventually, those same religious people that accepted him in the, in the, in the beginning, they actually would invite him to the synagogue to read and teach. Eventually, they rejected him. They drove him out of the synagogue. They, were, they drove him out of the town. They, they basically cornered him to an edge of a cliff and they wanted him to fall down. They wanted to kill him. They actually wanted to kill Jesus during that time. Now, Jesus being Jesus, you know, right at that moment, he just walked right through them. Like, I, I wish I could like see that scene of them pushing and him just walking right through them. Like, I don't know what happened where they couldn't, maybe they froze or something. And he walked right through them and just went about his business. But they wanted to kill him. They rejected him. Jesus proclaimed his ministry to the very people that you would expect to hear, right? The very people you would expect him to bring this to, the religious, those that seem to be most righteous, the people that seem to be blessed by God, the people that would go to a synagogue to listen to a teaching and try to learn about God. And what do these very people do when they hear about Jesus preaching, I'm sorry, hear Jesus preaching in the synagogue? They reject them. They reject them. You know, this scares me a little bit. I think it just scares a little. It scares me a little bit. When Jesus came to earth, he first went to the people that were considered to be godly people. He first went to the very people that were supposed to represent God here on earth. The people that were going to the synagogues to listen to God's word. And what did they do? They rejected Jesus. And that scares me. And I think that should scare us a little bit, to be honest. Because who are the religious people today? Us. That's us. You know, you might say, Joel, you shouldn't be scared by that. Like, they, they were different, right? You shouldn't be afraid. You should be confident in your faith. And you're absolutely right. I'm confident in my faith in Jesus. I really am. I'm confident and secure in my salvation, for sure. Uh, but when I read this, it makes me feel like there's this tension inside of me that doesn't want to settle with my level of faith. I, I don't want to settle with my faith. I really don't. You know, I, I'm confident in my, my salvation, but I don't want to be comfortable in my salvation. It makes me think of the scripture in Philippians chapter two, where it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, it's not saying work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I can be confident and secure in Jesus. I don't want to be comfortable in thinking that there's no room for growth. I don't want to be comfortable in thinking where I, I've arrived. I don't want to be comfortable in that sense. Because I'm sure the very people that were listening to Jesus in the synagogue were comfortable. And what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected him. That's scary. I'm convinced today that some people that claim to be the church, claim to know Jesus, 
claim to be close to him, claim to love him, claim to serve him, would be the very same people that would probably reject him if that were today, just like they did back then in the synagogue. And that's a scary thing to think about. So I approach this with a whole lot of fear and trouble. So yes, we should be confident and secure in Jesus because only in Jesus, only in the name of Jesus, can you be saved. That's the only way. That's the only way you can be saved. But one thing's for sure, we shouldn't be comfortable. You should always have your spiritual guard up. Or else you might find yourself being swayed into a religious group of rejectors. Back to the story. The story of Jesus' life is beautiful. Like his life was a life of poetry, really, when you look at it. Because when the religious people rejected Jesus, Jesus turned to the rejected people. I got to say that again because you got to see it, how beautiful it really is. When the religious people rejected Jesus, who did he go to? He, re- he actually went to the rejected people. He prophesied it right in the synagogue. His ministry was for the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. In the book of Matthew, we learn of the setting in which Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew tells us that as people began to hear about what Jesus was doing, teaching and healing, they would bring the sick, those who had diseases, those who were suffering with a severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he would heal them. So all of these people would flock to Jesus because they heard of what he was doing. And these were the people that society didn't find valuable. These were the people that the, the synagogue didn't find valuable. They didn't care for them. They were rejected by the society. They were rejected by Religious people, everywhere they went, they were rejected because they weren't seen as valuable wherever they went. And Jesus turned to them. Jesus turned to the rejected, the outcasted, the forgotten. They were the ones willing to listen to Jesus' message. And what was his message? Matthew 4 verse 17 says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what he was preaching. And they were listening. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That makes me think, I wonder how many people walk into church and feel like they don't belong. How many people walk into church today and feel like they don't belong? Maybe some of you that are here right now or watching online can relate to that. Like maybe some of you right here are feeling like, you know, I'm here. I love this Jesus I'm learning about. I'm loving what he's saying, but you don't really feel like you belong here. For whatever reason that might be, maybe you feel like the rejected, the outcasted. Maybe you feel like the forgotten. Maybe you feel like you don't fit in for whatever reason. You know, maybe it's on us. Like maybe the rest of us in the church have not done the best job in making you feel like you belong here. And if that's your case, please forgive us. Forgive us. If that's the case, please forgive us. But there, there can be so many other reasons too, right? Maybe in your mind you think you don't know enough about God, so that's why you feel like you don't belong. Or you don't feel smart enough or wealthy enough or you don't feel like you have the right job or the college degrees, or you don't have the perfect life with the perfect family, or maybe you're ashamed of your past, or you feel like you don't fit in because the way you grew up was just way too different from everyone else. You don't feel like anyone can really relate to you. You can't really relate to anyone else. Whatever the reason, and there can be so many different reasons, what I want you to know is Jesus is telling, speaking exactly to where you are right now. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, you belong in my house. My house is your house. I don't care where your background is. My house is your house. You're the very person I want to have here. I'm coming to you to the poor. I'm coming to you if you're, if you're poor, if you're you know, broken, if you feel like you're, if you're suffering. I'm coming to you if you're weak. I'm here for you. That's exactly who I want to be in my house. You belong in my house. I'm here for you if you're rejected, if you're outcast, if you feel like you've been forgotten. I'm speaking to anyone that's ever felt forgotten. If you feel like you're not good enough, if you feel like you don't make the cut, I'm here for you. You're the very person I don't want to be in my house. If you feel like that, if you feel like you don't fit in, if you feel like you're not worthy of God accepting you, you're the one I'm here for. If you don't feel like you belong in church, Jesus is saying you're the very person that I want in my house. My house is your house. And that was his message back then. And that's still his message today. See, after the religious people rejected Jesus, Jesus went to the rejected people and he gave them the Sermon on the Mount. His, Jesus walked up to a mountain and sat down and began to teach some of his disciples. And along with them, 
there was a large crowd that just kind of grouped around them and started listening in to his words. And these were his first words. His first words were, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they can relate to that word poor. They can relate to that. They, when they heard poor, they heard yeah, poor like I have no money. But they also heard broken. They also heard suffering. They also heard forgotten. They also heard not fitting in, the outcasted, rejected. They knew exactly what that word meant more than anyone else in those synagogues. They knew exactly what that meant. Jesus was very purposeful with this word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, this beatitude is not so much an action as it is an attitude. It's not so much as a step-by-step process that you can follow to have a poor, you know, to be poor in spirit. It's an attitude from within. It's a heart condition. There are a few words here that we need to break down a little bit before we can get a good understanding of what Jesus is saying. So let's look at that a little bit. The first word is blessed, right? Like, what does it mean to be blessed? You know, we, we hear that word. That's probably the most common, like, uh, used Christian term, right? What are some ways that we use uh, the blessed, the word blessed? Come on, you can, you can shout them out. What's the most common ways we use the word blessed? Blessed and highly favored. Okay. Anybody else blessed and highly favored? Come on. Two, huh, say again. Blessed but not stressed or too blessed to be stressed. Who said too blessed to be stressed sometime this week? Who said that already? Who has that sign up in their house somewhere? Come on, you can be honest. Who's got one, two, look at that one, two, three. Like so many, you know, two, God bless you, obviously. We say that all the time. God bless you. Or the, the most popular thing right now is probably hashtag blessed. Like who's used hashtag blessed before? Be honest. Who's used it? A lot of people have used it. It's probably the most common uh, Christian term used. It's the most common, like, you know, religious term used. Blessed. What does it mean, though? If you bless God, it means to praise God, to worship God. But if God blesses you, it means that God has given you, you know, some type of favor. He's given you some type of grace or mercy, right? He's given you grace, mercy. You've received some type of grace or gift from God. But a more complete definition, right? If you're being blessed by God, it would mean this. To be filled with joy by experiencing God's grace. To be filled with joy. When I heard that baby, I thought someone was yelling out amen. And I thought it was the perfect time because I was like, let's try this again. I'm going to drink some water. Someone amen. It was like the perfect filler, but no, it was just the baby screaming. All right. So blessed to be filled with joy by experiencing God's grace. See, to be blessed is to be completely satisfied in God. To be completely satisfied. And that's what I'm saying. Like when I, when I read this, it's like, Dear Lord, I know you got so much fear and trembling, I'm telling you, because to be completely satisfied in God is just the one word in this, in this verse. In the Beatitudes, blessed means to be happy, joyful, fully satisfied in God. So Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is basically saying, blessed are the poor. Happy are the poor. Fully satisfied in God are the poor. Now, of course, what Jesus is referring to is something much deeper than physical poverty, right? He's not, you know, really just talking about physical poverty. He's not really talking about earthly economics. He's not saying you're blessed if you have no money. He's not trying to make a new hashtag, like hashtag blessed to be broke. That's not what he's trying to say here, right? Although that would be a really creative one. Hashtag blessed to be broke. That's not what he's preaching. However, it is connected to his point. It's connected to his point. And we'll look at that in a little bit. There's a reason why Jesus is speaking to the crowd he's speaking to and delivering this message. You know, it's, it's interesting. In the book of Luke, Luke also covers the Beatitudes, right? And the way Luke has it written is a little bit different. So Luke in chapter 6, verse 20, you might not see it up there, but I'll just read it. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, I mean, kingdom of God. He just says, blessed are you who are poor. He doesn't say poor in spirit. He just says, blessed are you who are poor. But it's obviously more, much more than just talking about physical poverty. He's talking about a spiritual poverty. So the full meaning is much deeper. To be poor in spirit is not a physical condition. It's a heart condition. It's to admit that because of your sin, you're in desperate need of God. You have a spiritual debt that you can never repay. Like, you know, there's nothing you can do within yourself to repay 
the spiritual debt that you have. It's to understand that you're spiritually bankrupt. You're spiritually bankrupt. You have no power to help yourself and you need to completely depend on God. It's to recognize that you have nothing of value to offer God. That's what being poor in spirit actually means. See, you don't have to be physically poor to be poor in spirit. However, when you're physically rich, that can often be a stumbling block to be poor in spirit. When you, when you have a lot of physical wealth, that can actually be a stump. Jesus would talk about this all the time in scripture. It can be, a, look, you have a shirt that says, bless you should have stood up. She's rocking blessed right on the chest right now. That's awesome. I love that. I'm sorry. I got thrown off. So Jesus talked about this a lot. Forgive me, guys. Um, see, you don't have to be physically poor to be poor in spirit, but the opposite. When you have a lot of physical wealth, that can be an actual stumbling block. That can make it harder for you to be poor in spirit. Our earthly riches can create this, this illusion that we're self-reliant, that we're self-sufficient, that we're truly independent. That's what our earthly, like, think about it. You know, we live in the wealthiest country in the world, probably in all of history, right? And, you know, that can create this illusion that we're actually self-sufficient, that we're independent. So earthly riches, like physical wealth, can often be a, an obstacle to being poor in spirit. But I wanted to say this too. It can create this, I've got this attitude. Like, I've got this. I can take care of this. Right? I'm good. I got this. You can also think of it as, it's not just talking about money, right? Like, yeah, of course, they can talk about those kind of treasures. We can be rich in resources, but we can also be rich in talents, in skills, in abilities. We can be rich in intelligence or in physical strength. We can be rich in personality or influence or in power. All these earthly riches, as good as they can be, can become a stumbling block, keeping you from realizing your deep, desperate need of God. All of those things can actually block you from really realizing that you need, it can create this mindset that I don't really need God. Maybe a little bit. Like maybe sometimes I need God. Maybe when something really, really bad is happening, I need God then. But for the most part, like I've got this, I'm good. I don't need God, especially not on a daily basis. I don't need him all the time. I definitely don't need him at work. I'm great at my job. Like I I got this. Like I I definitely don't need him when I'm paying my bills. I, I got a whole lot of money. I'm great at saving. I don't really need God all the time. Just maybe in big situations. It can make you think the way I live is working for me. I know this way of living. It's worked for me in the past. I'm gonna keep going this way. Like I'm good. I'm okay. Being poor in spirit leads you to turn away from your way of living and turn into God's. Essentially, what keeps us from being poor in spirit is pride. That's what it is. It's this idea of being self-sufficient, being able to handle it on our own, being independent, confident that you're enough without really needing God. Maybe a little bit, but not completely. You know, the foolishness is this. The foolishness is not realizing that all good things you have are a gift from God. All good things you have. So you have it by God's grace. It's like saying, I don't need the giver. I just need his gifts. Like, I don't need the giver. As long as I have his gifts, I'm good. All right? I I don't really need to depend on God as long as I have my intelligence or my wisdom. I don't really need to depend on God as long as I have my money. As long as I have my job or, you know, my, my business. As long as I have my friends or my family, I'm good. I don't really need God. I don't really need God if I have the power that I have and the position that I have and the influence I don't really need God as long as I have my health. I don't need nothing else. As long as I'm healthy, I'm good. So it's, it's you know, this, this idea that I'm good as long as I have these gifts. I don't really need the giver. But it's foolishness because it's not realizing that everything good that you have comes from God to begin with. All you're saying is, God, I don't need to depend on you. As long as I have the gifts you've given me, I can depend on myself. You know, the way I think of it is, um, think of the college kid that, you know, goes out of state, right? And maybe, you know, their parents give them an apartment and, you know, they have this sense of independence. Oh, wow, look, I'm independent. I'm living on my own. Meanwhile, mom and dad are paying for the apartment. They're paying for your phone. They're paying for your car insurance. They're paying for the food, uh, the money you need for food. They're paying for your entertainment. So you got this false idea of independence, but you're not independent. Yeah, you might feel like you're apart, you're far away from the giver, but you're still receiving all those gifts, and it's the same way that we live our lives. A lot, of, a lot of us, we live this life thinking, I don't really need the giver. 
as long as I have his gifts. But he's the one that's given them to you. They're not yours. To be poor in spirit is to realize I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have a currency that does not convert into eternity. Like this money I have in my pocket does not convert into eternity. It doesn't make it. It doesn't reach that far. There are a couple of stories in the Bible that I like to share that I think really paint this picture well for this first beatitude. And the first one is a parable that Jesus actually shared about a Pharisee and a tax collector. So a Pharisee was a religious leader, but a tax collector was looked down upon because a tax collector was a, a Jewish man that collected taxes for Rome. Now, remember, Rome was in power back then, right? So this Jewish man would be, would be the, the person that collected the taxes that you had to pay the government that you hated because that was your enemy. That was the bad guy. This Jewish man would work for the bad guy. So they were collecting taxes for the enemy, Rome. And to make matters worse, sometimes they would overcharge to make a greater profit for themselves. So Jesus is talking to a crowd and tells them this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I want to read that now. So it's in the book of Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast, like, put him up, he's standing right there, like, at least, that's really what you're saying there? All these people, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, meaning the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Imagine Jesus telling this story to, you know, people like the Jewish people, and they know the Pharisee is the good guy. He's the religious leader. And the tax collector is the bad guy. He works for the enemy, right? Like he's, he's making us pay the government that's over, overruling us, like ruling over us. So they know who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, but he flips it. And he said, no, the Pharisee is wrong. Look at his heart. The tax collector, he's the one that's coming before God and saying, I know I'm a sinner. I, I don't even deserve to look up to you. Please forgive me for my sins. And Jesus says, he's the one that went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So again, notice the religious person was prideful. He was thanking God for how great he himself was, right? He was comparing himself to other people. He was praising God for being better than other people around him. That that was his heart. But the tax collector had no time to compare himself to anybody else because he was too busy comparing himself to God. And he knew that compared to God, he had nothing to offer. Comparing himself to God, he was spiritually bankrupt. He was broke. He was indebted to God to try to build. He was too indebted to God to try to build up his own pride. He couldn't look at anybody else and compare himself to anybody else because he knew that was worthless compared to how great in debt he was to God. He had nothing to offer God. He was in dire need of God's grace. And here's a second example that makes this point very vivid to us. It's from the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah was a a prophet and a priest and a prophet used by God in the land of Judah, basically like 3,000 years ago, a long time ago. And one day while he was praying in the temple, Isaiah had a vision and he found himself in God's presence. Like that's, that's pretty cool, right? He found himself in God's presence as he was praying in the temple. And the vision humbled Isaiah in a way that he had never been humbled before. No, like no comparison to how he's ever been humbled before. So he saw the Lord in heaven, sitting on the throne, right, of heaven. And not only did he see God, but he also saw angels all around God. And they were singing God's praises. So I want to pick up from that point to like the rest of that story. It's Isaiah chapter six, verses three through seven. And this is Isaiah actually telling the story himself. And he says, and they were calling to one another, the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. 
Listen to his response. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim, which is an angel, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Something to notice, I want to point out, Isaiah was already a priest when he received this vision from God, right? In other words, he was already being used by God. He already like knew the Lord and had an encounter with, this wasn't his very first encounter with God. He already knew God. He was already being used by him. He was already serving, leading, praying in the temple. Even with that, he still had to be broken by God. God still had to break him at that point. See, God is called, I want to say, you might be listening right now and you feel like you don't really know God. And maybe that's, that's you. Like maybe at this moment in your life, you feel like you don't really know God that, that well. And if that's the case, this message is, is definitely for you, right? Like God is calling all people to humble themselves before him. If you've never done it before, he's calling you to do it now. He's saying, you know, like, I want you to bow down before me. Could that be you? Is God knocking at your heart and saying these words? Hey, it's time to bow down and make me king. It's time to bow down and make me king. Maybe you've never made that decision before. Maybe you've never really understood that before. God is saying, hey, I want to be king of your heart. I want to rule inside your heart. So if you've never done that before, God might be speaking to you. But this message is also, this message is also for anyone that's already done that. You might have known God for many years and God is still speaking to you because he's still speaking to all of us. This message is for everyone because it's so easy for us to become comfortable and our faith. It's so easy for us to be comfortable. We should be confident and secure in our salvation, but we should never be comfortable in our salvation. In this vision, God reminded Isaiah to walk with fear and trembling. He was already a priest, but in order for God to use him even further, he had to get him to a point of brokenness. Because after this was actually when Isaiah began his, his ministry in prophecy and prophesying, and being a prophet for the land of Judah. So God had to break him even further to get him to that point, to use him in that way. So my question for you, if you've known God for a while, if you already know him, if you already claim to be a Christian, are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Are you working out your salvation, or are you comfortable? Have you been comfortable? I come Sunday mornings, I pray once in a while, I listen to some worship music once in a while, I'll read a little bit. Are you just comfortable? Did you notice Isaiah's response? His response was brokenness. He said, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. He realized he was poor in spirit. He realized he had nothing to offer God. Nothing of value. Compared to God, he was nothing. Isaiah saw God's glory and it made him realize his own shame. Isaiah saw God's greatness and it made him realize his own lowliness. He saw God's power and it made him realize how weak he really was. See, the only proper response to being in God's presence is to recognize that you don't compare to his greatness. Listen, if I stand next to someone really tall, I realize, I remember, I'm sure, I'm not a tall guy. It's that simple, right? I'll notice that right away. I remember that right away. And it's the same thing when you're in God's presence. When you see God's glory, the only only two things should, should you notice, how great God is and how weak you really are. So my question is, have you seen God's glory? Have you had a glimpse of God's glory? When you find yourself in the presence of God, you see how glorious he is. You can't help but notice how impure you really are. That's exactly what Isaiah's response was. He realized how impure he really was. Have you seen God's glory? Have you seen how great God is? You know, maybe you've never had such a vivid experience as Isaiah. I've never had that either. That would be pretty amazing, right? I've never had that either. But there are so many other ways that you can, you know, get a glimpse of God's glory. I'll I'll list just a few, you know, but you can experience God's presence in a very powerful way in prayer. When you're pouring out, out your heart to him, trusting that he's listening to you, expecting him to respond. Have you ever seen God's glory in that situation? Have you experienced God's glory in that way? Have you seen God's glory there? How about reading his word? Believing that the Bible is the inspired word of God believing that God uh, through scripture has revealed a special revelation to us 
and God revealed it to us so we should live by it. Have you seen God's glory in his word? Have you seen God's glory there? How about in worship? Of course, worship is anything you do that gives God glory and praise, right? Anything you do. But specifically, I mean, like when we worship God through song, when we're singing to him, and by faith we're saying these words, and we're worshiping him in this sense, have you seen God's glory there? Have you sensed his presence through worship? Or how about this one? Walking in obedience. When you obey God's word, and you're trusting in his way, through time you see him putting your life in order and fixing things and orchestrating things, organizing things that you know it's only out of, as a result of you being obedient to his word. Have you seen God's glory there? See, you might be sitting here and asking God, God, show me. If you're real, show me. Show me that you're real. I'm showing you the different ways that you can easily see him. You can see him when you speak to him because God listens. You can see to him when you speak, when you pray, because he responds. You can see, you can see God Vividly, clearly in his word. It's his inspired word. You can see him when you worship with all your heart. You can see him when you walk in obedience. That's probably the easiest way to see him. Let me walk right. God, let me trust you in the way that I'm living my life. You want to see God? Follow him. Do what he's telling you to do. You want to see God work in your life? Trust that he can put your life in order. You want to see that God is real? Obey him. Don't walk in your own ways. Obey God and you'll see how God is real. You'll see how great he is. You'll see a glimpse of his glory. Obey his word. Walk in obedience. See, you can see God's glory whenever you seek his presence. He's not hiding. Like God's not playing hide and seek. You want to see God's glory? Seek his presence. Seek me and you shall find me when you seek me with all your heart. He's not hiding from you. Look for me and you'll see me. That's what God says. You want to see God's glory? Look for him. Open your eyes. Pour out your heart. Be poor in spirit. Realize that you need him. Realize that you're broken without him. When you're looking for him, you find him. Where was Isaiah when he had the vision? Where was he? He was in the temple doing what? Praying to God. He was worshiping. He was seeking the Lord. He wasn't running away from God. He was looking for God. And what did he do? He found God in a greater way than ever before. When do you see God's glory? The only, I'm sorry, forgive me. When you see God's glory, the only appropriate response would be like that of the tax collector, where he couldn't even look up to heaven. He beat on his chest. He said, I'm a sinner. He realized how unclean he was. He was unworthy. Just like Isaiah, I'm ruined when he realized how unclean he was. Have you really seen God's glory? Have you really been looking? Are you seeking him? See, to be poor in spirit, like I said before, is not so much an action as it is an attitude. You you can't follow certain steps to become poor in spirit. It's a heart condition. It's a matter of the heart. Sometimes, you know, it takes going through the hardest times in life to really find that place. I think of King David. You know, King David had, had to go through some really hard things in life. He went through a lot of stuff. But in particular, his heart was humbled before God after his own sin led to a lot of suffering and, you know, just um, sorrow. And listen to his words in Psalm 51. Again, this was in result of his own sin. He was already King David. This wasn't like a newbie. He wasn't just learning about God. But listen to his words after he found how low he was because of his own sin. He said, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Like, to me, that's almost like Matthew 5, verse 3, but in Old Testament. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. It's a matter of the heart. It's a heart condition. Now, it's beautiful, though. It's poetic, even. It really is. Jesus says, be poor in spirit, meaning recognize that compared to God, you're empty. Okay, now, you got it? Okay, now, I'm going to fill you up. I'm going to fill you up. I'm going to give you my kingdom, and I'm going to fill you up so that you're full. Jesus says, be poor in spirit, meaning recognize that you're poor. Okay, you got it? Now, I'm going to make you spiritually rich. Jesus says, be poor in spirit, meaning you should bow down and humble yourself. Okay, you did that. Now I'm going to lift you up 
And there's no greater thing than being lifted up by God because then you don't have to keep yourself up. He's the one that does it for you. See, the result is the kingdom of heaven, which is salvation and eternity with God. So basically, the beatitude could be said in this way. I'm going to say it in in, in Elizabeth terms. I don't know, in our, our terms. Joyfully and completely satisfied are those that realize their great need for God because they will spend an eternity in his presence. I'll say it again. Joyfully and completely satisfied are those that realize their great need for God because they will spend eternity in his presence. See, in eternity is God's presence. That's salvation. And that's the reward for those that are poor in spirit. But why? Why is that, re- that reward? Because when you're poor in spirit, what you're basically saying is Jesus is king. You're saying, Jesus be the king of my heart. I need you to rule in the land of my heart because I am nothing without you. I'm ruined without you. So when you're making Jesus king, then obviously the reward is his kingdom. Look at what Isaiah says in chapter 57. He says, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, I think this scripture paints it perfectly. Eternity with God doesn't just mean being in God's presence after you die. Eternity with God begins as soon as you accept Jesus into your heart. Eternity starts now. Like the kingdom of heaven starts now. It's not just up there. It's also down here. The Bible says that clearly the reward of of the poor in spirit is to live with God in his kingdom on both sides of eternity. So when you have this heart condition of recognizing your great need for God, you receive him through Jesus. You receive closeness to him. Not in some distant future, but now. Jesus is saying, be poor in spirit, meaning recognize that you've got nothing without me. Okay, you got it? Now you've got me. Now you've got me. If you're poor in spirit, you realize you have nothing without me? Guess what? Now you've got me. Now you've got everything because you've got me. It's starting now. That's what great God's grace does. It steps in and it fills the gap when we fall short. It was the tax collector who was justified. Isaiah realized that he was ruined, but his guilt was taken away and his sin was atoned for. See, the first beatitude mentioned by, by Jesus, I believe um, the rest of the beatitudes actually overflow from it. So to be poor in spirit, again, is, an, is more of, a, of an attitude than an action. But I really think the rest of the Beatitudes flow out of being poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit leads to the rest of these Beatitudes. It corrects your perspective on who God is. It corrects your perspective on who you are. It corrects your perspective on how you even view other people. But it all begins with recognizing who God really is. So at this moment, I'm going to give us an opportunity to reflect And again, there's no step-by-step process of of being poor in spirit, of having this kind of heart condition. It's a matter of the heart, right? But I want to give us a chance to hear our view, like to check out our view of God. I I want you to kind of have this moment just to reflect in your own heart, your view of God. So I'm going to share a story. Actually, I'm going to read some scripture from this story. But it's the story of Job. And Job suffered a whole lot in life. Like he went through a whole lot of suffering, a lot of pain in a short amount of time. Now, he never lost his faith in God, but he did start to complain, right? He started to complain a whole lot. And honestly, like, I think I would have done the same as him. Like, he went through a whole lot of suffering and he started to complain about what he was going through. He couldn't understand why he was going through all the suffering. And I get it. Like, I think I would have done the same. But God responded to Job. And God's response changed Job's perspective, It completely changed his perspective. Job had an Isaiah moment with God's words. He had an Isaiah moment. He got a glimpse of God's glory. As deeply painful as Job's suffering really was, God's response pierced through his heart and led him to repentance because he saw how great God is. We can go through a whole lot of suffering in life, but look at Job. Even though he went through all that suffering, When he got a glimpse of how great God was, it led him to repentance. So I want to read some of God's words. And as I read this, I'm going to ask everyone just to close your eyes for a couple minutes. And as I read um, God's response to Job, 
I want you to hear it as if God were speaking directly to you personally. So imagine it wasn't God speaking to Job. Imagine it were God speaking right to you. Hear these words as if God were giving you a glimpse of his glory. As if he were saying these words to fix your perspective. As if God were speaking directly to your heart. All right, everyone. Eyes closed, ready? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said this far you may come and no further. Here's where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That's the one that gets me. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Can you bind the chains of the... I practiced this word so many times. Um, I'm going to butcher it. Um, Pleiades. Can you... It's talking about stars. Can you listen? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do do you know the time they give birth? Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wing toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? And God said a whole lot more to Job in this time. But Job's response, just a part of it was this. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I've seen your glory. I've gotten a glimpse of your glory. I've seen how great you are, God. You fixed my perspective of how great you are and how small I really am. How powerful you are and how weak I really am. How intelligent you are and how foolish I really am. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Can you see a glimpse of God's greatness? Not only all around you, as you realize he's the maker of all creation. Everything you see around you was by his design. Your mind that you're thinking with right now was his design. But also, can you see the fingerprints of God's greatness even within your own life? See, when we see how great God is, the only appropriate response is to have a broken and contrite heart, to be poor in spirit. But God's grace is beautiful. It's good because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for speaking to our hearts, revealing to us this truth about you. This truth that you want to be near us. This truth, Lord, that you come to the rejected people when everyone else rejects us. This truth that you come for everyone, Lord, because what you desire is to be close with your people. And I pray, my Lord, that we get a deeper understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. I pray, God, that we understand how deeply we are in need of you. You know, we can't fall for that foolishness of of thinking, I don't need the giver as long as I have all of his gifts. Everything we have that is good, Lord, it comes from you to begin with. Help us see it. Help us have that Isaiah moment. Help us have that Job moment. Help us get to that point like what David said 
Help us see it, Lord. Help us respond to you like the tax collector, realizing how deeply we are in need of you. And God, so we can taste even within that, we can taste your grace, how beautiful your grace really is. Because you say when we, when we are poor in spirit, we're blessed. When we are poor in spirit, we receive your kingdom, which is your presence. And not just in some distant time, we receive your presence even now. I pray, my King Jesus, for two people. I pray for the person that doesn't know you, Lord. I pray that they may get to know you. I pray that they may get to the place where they find themselves broken before you, recognizing how deeply in need they are of you. And they invite you into their hearts. And they say, Jesus, I need you to be king in this land of my heart. Because I'm nothing without you. Be king of my heart. So that they may receive the kingdom of heaven. But I even pray for those that know you, Lord. That we be confident and secure in salvation. But we don't be comfortable in our salvation, Lord Jesus. That we approach this on a daily basis with fear and trembling. Recognizing that we completely need you. We need you all the time, not just once in a while, not just on Sundays, not just when something really bad or really difficult happens all the time, Lord. There's not a time that we don't need you. Help us, Lord. Help us approach this walk that we have of faith in that manner, to be poor in spirit all the time. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your word. Help us apply it in our lives so you can mold our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch on demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.